you can write down number one, the delight that's mentioned. The delight. Look at verse number one, chapter 19, 1 Samuel. It says, And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Now think about this. Saul is not trying to hide his intentions anymore. Before, it was just Saul out to get David. Now Saul is enlisting everybody he can for the purpose of destroying David. It was going to be public knowledge. This pursuit, everybody knows about it. He wanted everybody to know. Maybe for the simple fact of if I tell enough people, maybe somebody will actually help me get the job done. Maybe somebody, because you don't see anybody up to this point helping Saul with this quest. You see Saul trying to do all the work himself, and now he's going to enlist people to help him. But as Saul is trying to eliminate David, destroy David from his life, there's another guy in this story that kind of stands back out in chapter 19 who could not imagine life without David. In verse number 2, it says, even though Saul is saying to his son and to his servants that David needs to die, it says in verse 2, but, Saul, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. There was somebody who still appreciated David. Even though Saul hated him, Saul wanted him dead, Jonathan still delighted in David. It's a good reminder to us that just because the leader may or may not have good motives doesn't mean that all of the followers of that leader have to have bad motives with him. See, Saul was the one who is trying to lead this charge, but Jonathan, his own son, the one who is heir to the throne, by the way, he is not jumping on the bandwagon with dad. He is not jumping on the bandwagon. And see, we think about our life today, Ephesians chapter number 6, verse 12, the Bible tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And then it says this phrase, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Spiritual wickedness in high places. The high places in Ephesians chapter 6 are positions of authority. There is a spiritual battle going on in positions of authority. We see that in our world today. We see people around us who are good people, well-minded people, but do wrong. They might seem like, man, that person has all their stuff together. And when they open their mouth, it's very clear. Maybe they don't have as much together as we think they do. Just because they have a position of authority doesn't mean that they're spiritual. Doesn't mean they're exactly living the way that God wants them to. But because Saul was the king, didn't give permission for all these other people to follow him down that path. And we see what Paul said in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. When we see the importance of subjecting ourselves to the leader, that does not mean that we have to be like them. Uh, when we see in Romans chapter 13, what is Paul trying to show us? He's trying to show us that we should respect the position of authority that God's placed in our life. But that doesn't mean that we have to align ourselves to their position of authority, to their position that they may hold. 
That's why we can respect the office of some elected leaders without agreeing with their stance on positions that oppose the Bible. Well, I can still respect the office that they hold even if I don't respect the position what they have chosen to support. You know, think about when we go to the polls next month for our state elected officials, we will not find Jesus' name on the ballot. That would be nice, but his name is not going to be on the ballot. But you know what will be on the ballot? The principles that reflect who he is will be on the ballot. The principles. You say, well, you know, Pastor, it's a state election. It's not that big of a deal. Do you know that less than 40% of evangelical good church-going Christians are even registered to vote? 40%? That means that 60% have essentially said, we don't care. That's shocking and sad. We can't complain if we won't vote. Well, I don't like what so-and-so does. Did you vote? Well, no, I didn't think it even mattered. It does matter. Do you realize that we have the opportunity next month, November the 7th, we have the opportunity to enact change in our state? We are just a few seats away from changing abortion laws, marriage laws, casino laws, uh, marijuana laws. In our state. Well, pastor, they they can drive somewhere else to get it. Yeah, but they have to drive somewhere else to get it. Why can't we vote to change things in our state? And that starts with voting. Don't complain if you don't do it. I know we've got a presidential election coming up next year, and that'll take a lot of screen time and a lot of air time and all that stuff. And it's not a political message But think about the fact that we all have a responsibility as Americans to vote. To let our voice be heard. And hey, the day may come when we don't have a voice anymore. Let's not let that voice be silenced this year or next year. When we have an opportunity, hey, when when they start seeing percentages going down, it's really easy to say, well, if they don't care anyway, why do we even give them a vote? We need to enact change. You think about David meets with Jonathan. Jonathan gets with him in verse 2 and says, Jonathan told David, saying, Behold, my, uh, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself unto the morning and abide in a secret place and hide thyself. Now, aren't you glad that there are people in our lives who actually care what happens to us? Jonathan truly cared about what happened to his friend. Well, let me ask you tonight, do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend that actually cares what happens to you? If you do, thank God for it because not everybody has a friend like that. David did. And David had somebody who would advocate for him on his behalf. Now look at verse number 4. When he gets to verse number 4, it says, And Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father. He advocated for David. In, in the presence of his father. But what does he do? Does he just say that David's a good guy? Does he just say, hey, uh, you shouldn't hurt David because it's the wrong thing to do? What does he say about David? He says, let not the king sin against his servant. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody tried to kill me at least twice at this point, I don't know that I'd be signing up to help in the serving line serving this guy. 
But Jonathan said, hey, even though you've tried to kill him twice before, Dad, he's still your servant. He is still acting like he serves you, which is just a follow-up to what David said in chapter 17, verse 32, when he said, thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David's feeling, his loyalty had not changed just because the leadership had changed. Just because the leader was acting poorly did not mean that David had a right to act out. Can I just lovingly remind us tonight, just because our leaders don't always act the most spiritual doesn't give us an excuse to follow down that path. Just because people that at your work, at your school, at your, in your neighborhood don't make good choices doesn't give you an excuse not to make good choices with them. The leader was doing wrong, but David was still loyal. But while Jonathan is talking to his dad, we see that conversation. You, know, you see the, the rivalry between them and the, the snippiness that you would expect with these two guys. But you also see that Jonathan is not afraid to speak truth to the king. It says in verse number 4, he says, Let not the king sin against his servant. Now, that word was a strong word. Still is, by the way. Verse 5 for he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine. And the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it and did rejoice. Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood? Hey, Dad, why are you going to do this thing? This is wrong. And Jonathan is speaking to the king. This is something where, remember, Saul had already looked at Jonathan one time and said, You're going to die. For what you did, it would not be a stretch for Saul to say, Hey, Jonathan, for what you just said, guys, go out and take and kill Jonathan. It wouldn't be that big of a stretch for Saul to do this. But he's reminding his father, Hey, this is wrong. This is wrong. It reminds me of John the Baptist. When you go to the New Testament, in Mark chapter number 6, when we see in Mark 6, 18, For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife looked at the king and said, this is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And can I just, again, interject right here? We need friends like that too. We need people in our lives who will say, this is wrong. One of my favorite people in the Bible is the prophet Nathan. Nathan, if you study out Nathan's life, you see that Nathan wasn't an older guy than David was. He was a peer. Because when David dies, Nathan is still alive. Nathan becomes an advisor for Solomon. So he had to be either the same age or younger than David. So you see Nathan following David throughout his reign as the king. And when David says, hey, I'm going to build the temple. Who is there to give advice to David? Nathan. What does Nathan say? Whatever's in your heart, do it. Whatever God leads you to do, do it. Right there. And then you see, when David sins with Bathsheba, who is there to point it out? It's Nathan. It's that same guy. He can celebrate with you and say, do it for the Lord. He can also look at you and say, hey, what you did is sin and it's wrong and God's going to punish you for it. But then that same guy is also around to advise David's son. Did you realize if you've ever studied out history, the first son, or excuse me, second or third son, that Solomon had, you know what they named him? Nathan. 
Solomon had a son named Nathan. You think there's any connection? Any, any symbolism? The fact that Nathan advised Solomon and Solomon had a son and named him Nathan for that connection? But all of this delight was being overshadowed. And Jonathan's son delights in David. Saul had delighted in David at one particular time. But it's all being overshadowed by something that Saul assumed because of something he heard. Saul had slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. All of that. It makes me wonder, are we so focused on the words of others that we can't hear the voice of truth? Are we so focused on what other people are saying that it's drowning out what is true in our own lives? We see the delight. Number two, we see the dedication that's mentioned. Verse 6 through 8. You see several points of submission here. David uh, is still in the background. Jonathan says, Dad, this is not, this is not right. and uh, This needs to be corrected. And what does Saul do? Verse 6. And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan... And Saul swear, as the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan showed him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. Seems like it's great. Hey, Saul has repented. Everything's been made right. David is now back in the palace. Everything is going to be good again. You see all kinds of submission here. David, uh, Saul first submits to Jonathan, and uh, Saul submits to the Lord as the Lord lives. And then David submits to Jonathan in verse number 7. Hey, I, I'll come back. Puts a lot of trust. And it all comes back to Jonathan. You see Saul submitting. You see David submitting. But it all came back to Jonathan. He is the link, the vital link in the story. He had to be there, the key factor. None of it would have been possible without someone taking that stand. And that's the kind of friend that we need to be. Not only do we need them, that's the kind of friend that we need to be in our own lives. R.C.H. Linsky said, It is the best and truest friend who honestly tells us the truth about ourselves even when he knows we shall not like it. False friends are the ones who hide such truth from us and do so in order to remain in our favor. Hide the truth from us in order to remain in our favor favor. You see, Saul had already tried to kill David twice. You think it would be a stretch for David to want to come back to the palace? He trusted Jonathan. That's where it was. Trusted Jonathan in this situation when he could not trust Saul. And just so we all know, we might not be able to trust everybody, but we should have some people in our life that we can trust, that we can count on. And David had Jonathan. Proverbs 27, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Because Jonathan was faithful to David, David was able to be faithful to Saul again. It had a trickle-down effect. But then we see, number three, the danger that's mentioned in verse 9 through 12. All of a sudden, we see this spirit of oppression rest on Saul again. Everything was good. David was gone back out in the battle. Verse 8 tells us that he went back out in the battle, conquering the Philistines again. Everything was great. David was being exalted. But in this, Saul started hearing this voice again. Saul started thinking about David's out there winning all these battles. People are going to be singing about him again. I need to eliminate him. 
verse 9. And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand. And David played with his hand. You think about the two hands mentioned in verse number 9. You've got one with a weapon, one ready to kill, and you've got one with a musical instrument ready to soothe in peace. Two totally different personalities, two totally different stances. Verse 10, And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence and he smote the javelin into the wall. Third time. Third time. and Not third time's a charm. A third time and I'm done. I'm out of here. This is not even worth this. Uh, play your own song. Play a CD. Something. you know. Uh, press that app on your phone. Play, play your own song. Guys, you need to learn how to play the harp. I am out of here. That's where he is. David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers under David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. If you don't get out of here tonight, David, you're going to die tomorrow morning. You've got to leave. You know, maybe David was convinced at this point when he came back to the palace, hey, this part of my life is over. Saul's made things right. It's, it's going to be all better. Man, we, we've hugged. We've shaken hands. Man, we've got our secret handshake going again. Everything's going to be good. And we can move on. But Saul began to grow jealous again of David's influence. It came back, everything, all the while. And this is the instrument, the exact same instrument. Saul's used this twice before. Thrown that javelin against the wall, trying to kill him. But this time was different. Same Result, David runs, same weapon that Saul throws. But what was different about the first two times this time? The difference was in verse number 6. You remember? What did Saul say? This time there was a promise attached to what he said. He said, as the Lord liveth, he won't be slain. This time was different because... Saul put his word on it. And more importantly, he put God's name on it. You know what this is? This is taking God's name in vain. Saul got to the place where it did not bother him taking God's name in vain. And this is where we see the progression of a hardened heart. You know, initially, Saul's battle was just within. And it worked its way out. He could have dealt with it. He should have dealt with it. Should have corrected it. Should have apologized. Should have moved on. But he didn't. And now the progression is, I don't really care about my word. And I don't really care about God's name. This progression of sin that just started with simple jealousy. Well, I don't know why they get the spotlight. I don't know why they get called on. I don't know why they get to serve and I don't. I don't know why they get to sing and I don't. I don't know why they get to teach and I don't. I don't know why they get the spotlight and they get invited on the stage and I don't. It's that green-eyed monster of jealousy. Hey, over and over we see it in the Scripture destroy people's lives. Remember Moses' own brother and sister that rose up against him? Why? Jealousy. It happened over and over. What was the squabble? Throughout the entire ministry between Peter and John, jealousy. Hey, who's going to be elevated? Who gets to sit on your right hand and your left hand? 
Now remember who asked the question? It was John's mom. James and John. That mom. Hey, are my boys, I know Peter's standing right there, but are my boys going to be the ones who are sitting on your right hand and your left hand? It was constant. And that's exactly what we see here. And Saul is making promises that he has no intention on keeping. It's gotten easier to sin. And now Saul is becoming more bold with his sin. Hey, before it was just, I don't like that guy. I'm just going to throw a javelin. Now it's, I'm going to throw God's name on it. And I don't care if I break God's name. Johnny Erickson Tata said, Though gradually, though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable. And then acceptable. And then legal. And then applaudable. We could put a list of sin that the Bible calls sin in that statement. What was unthinkable. Hey, unthinkable now is tolerable. And what's tolerable, then it becomes acceptable. Well, you know, as long as it doesn't affect me. As long as it doesn't impact my kids. As long as it doesn't impact our school. As long as it doesn't trickle into our church. It becomes tolerable, acceptable, and then becomes legal. i never forget, we were on the mission field in uh, 2015 when the news came out that gay marriage had been legalized in the United States. It was legal. Legal. What once was unthinkable is now legal. And then applaudable. Parades. Let's have parades. All the, and I'm just using one example. There's a whole litany of things we could discuss. What once was unthinkable is now applaudable. MacArthur said, Sin in the mind goes to work in the emotions. That incites the will which yields the act. There's a progression. Lust, when it's conceived, bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There's a progression, a natural progression. And Saul's emotions were destroying his reputation. He did not keep his emotions in check. And can we all agree that our emotions get us all in trouble? Did you hear what they said about me? Did you hear what they, did you see them the way they looked at me? Did you see they did not even make eye contact with me? I knew that they didn't like me. I knew that they had something against me. Our emotions run rampant. And because we don't keep them under control, they start affecting who we are. Where once there was a sweet spirit that loved Jesus and loved people, now we're critical of others. Yeah, we love Jesus on Sunday, but yeah, that's about the only day. And we think about our lives. Saul could not be trusted because his emotions were gone. David escapes in the night, heads for home. But David still had some people who loved him, which was awesome. And you look at verse number 11 again. David had somebody at home who loved him. Somebody at home who wanted to protect him. And it isn't awesome to have somebody in that state that loves us and wants to protect us. And the most unlikely person 
is protecting David. Look at verse number 12. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. A dangerous situation, crisis averted. Michael leans in and helps him. She puts David in the basket, lets him down over the wall. All these people, Jonathan protecting David, Michael protecting David, even from their own father protecting him. And there's something to be said about people who seek to do right. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Be followers of me even as I am of Christ. Hey, let's just do right. Let's just do right. Bob Jones said, when the stars fall, do right. When everything else collapses in our world system and we are watching the demise of our world system, we are watching prophecy unfold before our eyes. So, Pastor, is it scary? In certain ways, yeah, because it's unknown. But should we be anxious or fearful about it? Absolutely not. Why not, Pastor? Because we know the one who's ultimately in control. We know. It doesn't matter what happens. We're sad that what's going on in Israel is taking place. But at the end of the day, nothing is going to happen apart from his knowledge and his signing off. He is in control. And it matters who we associate with. When we choose our friendships, that truly matters because everybody we spend time with is either pushing us away from Jesus or pulling us to Jesus. We get that say-so. Number four, we see the deception in verse 13 through 18. Michael lets him down the window, and we would think, man, this is great. Michael is in the same category with Jonathan, but it doesn't look that way. Look at verse 13, and Michael took an image. This is not a Polaroid image, okay? This is an idol. Michael is an idol worshiper. Even though she's married to David, the, the, the psalmist of Israel, she is an idol worshiper. She takes one of her own idols, lays it in the bed, put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. And when Saul sent messengers, remember those messengers who were coming to get David? Knock on the door and Michael says what? He's sick. They peek in the room. Yep, I see him. See that hair? Yep, lay in there. Yep, we'll come back tomorrow. What happens? Verse number 15. And Saul sent the messengers again to see David saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. Hey, I don't care if he's sick or not. That's an advantage. Go kill him. Verse number 16. When the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair for his bolster. And Saul said unto Michael, why hast thou deceived me so and sent away mine enemy that he has escaped? Now, see what Saul has done? At the beginning of the chapter, he's my servant. Here, he's my enemy. And Michael, because he's my enemy, he should be your enemy. You should be helping me kill him. He is threatening our way of life, Michael. What a great opportunity for Michael to pledge her undying love and affection for David. Jonathan did. Her own brother did. Hey, the thing that you're doing, Dad, is not right. This is sin. But what does Michael do? How does Michael respond? What's she say in verse number uh, 17? And Michael answered Saul, He, David, said unto me, Let me go. Why should I kill thee? She says, Dad, 
David threatened me. I had to do it. The devil made me do it. Instead of standing with her husband, instead of standing with David and doing what was right, what does she do? She lies. She lies to her own father. Here's a quote that may or may not be in your notes. When you lie to someone, you're telling them that you don't respect them enough to tell the truth. You don't respect them enough to tell them the truth. Michael lies to her own father. She lies to her dad. And we might think, you know, she, she just had to do something. She, you know, she couldn't side with one or the, one, the other. But she chose a side by not choosing a side. And I think sometimes we think that, you know, I'm just going to stay neutral. I don't need to get involved. I don't need to pick a side. But here's the thing. By not choosing a side, you're choosing a side. There will come a time in our life where we will have to choose a side. Choose wisely. I think about that Indiana Jones movie. He chose poorly. Uh, You know, think about, you need to choose wisely. Choose wisely. Michael buys just enough time for David to be able to get away. And where does David go? He goes to Ramah. Where was Ramah? Ramah was where Samuel was from. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible tells us about Samuel's father Elkanah. It says, and a certain man of Ramoth Aam Zophim of Mount Ephraim, Elkanah. That's where Samuel's from. That's his hometown. Where does David go? He goes back to Ramah. Hey, I know that there's a man in Ramah who loves me and will support me and will help me and will encourage me. What does he do? That's where David goes. He goes back to Samuel. He knew that Saul was not leading him. He knew that Saul didn't have his best interests at heart. He knew that he couldn't spend a lot of time with Jonathan because Saul would find out it may come back on Jonathan. He couldn't stay with Michael. We already know whose side she was really on. So we, David has nobody but Samuel. So what's he do? He goes back to Samuel. And even here, David had someone that he could go to. He had someone in his life, and I'll reiterate again, who do you have in your life that you can go to? We talk about accountability. We talk about groups. We talk about this brotherhood. We talk about making sure that you've got somebody. Who is that someone in your life that you can go to, that you can talk to, that you can confide in, that you can be encouraged by? Who is that person? And then are you that person that someone can come to you and someone can be encouraged from you? Not somebody who's like Job's friends. Remember what Job said about his own friends? Miserable comforters are you all. You're horrible. If you're here to encourage me, you stink. Job said that about his three friends. Don't be one of those friends. Be that person who, no matter what, hey, I can encourage somebody. I can be a blessing. Lastly tonight, we see the disturbance. Still bent on finding David, focused, what does Saul do? Verse 19, it was told Saul saying, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Hey, we know where he is, Saul. uh, Saul. We know where he is. He's going back to see Samuel. Let's go get him. Saul takes his men. Look at verse 20. Saul sent messengers to take David. When they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel is with all the prophets. When he got there, 
saw all these prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. These guys walk into a revival service, and they get blessed and start speaking about God and what he's doing. That was not Saul's intention, by the way. That was not his goal. Verse 21. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Saul is not having a good day. Over and over, he's trying. Will somebody just go and kill David? What does Saul do in verse number 22? If you can't get somebody to do your work for you, go and do it yourself. (laughs) Then went he also to Ramah and came to the great well that seek you. And he asked and said, where is Samuel and David? And I can see Saul, you know, running in with his sword, you know, ready. Where are they? And one said, Behold, they be at Naoth and Ramah. And he went thither to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went and prophesied. You got this guy who sends servant after servant and messenger after messenger, and all of them come back prophesying, The Lord is good. I love you, Lord, for your mercy. They're just prophesying all the goodness of the Lord. And Saul goes... Now, this is kind of extreme. We don't need a service like this. I'll just go ahead and throw the disclaimer out, okay? We don't need a service like verse 24. And he stripped off his clothes also. Let's not have one of those revival services, okay? Uh, Maybe somebody else's church, but not this one. And prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked. Yeah, we don't need a service like that. Uh, And all day and all that night, wherefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Radical. Yeah, that, that's loosely. <laughs> well, what happens? Saul is determined. And what does Saul do? He runs right into the will of God. What was the will of God? That David be the next king. And Saul fought and fought and fought. And here's what he learned and what we need to learn. You are not going to overcome God's will with your own. You're not going to overcome God's will with your own. God has a plan. We we say He's sovereign. He has a plan. Yes, He does give us a free will, but our will does not override God's will. There's a fine line there. But Saul tries again and again But it just reminds us, what was David's personality? What was he doing? 1 Samuel 18, 14. David behaved himself wisely in all these ways. And the Lord was with him. David was on a path, career path for the throne. And Saul was not going to get in the way as much as he tried. Over and over and over. It was a never-ending pursuit until the day that Saul died. And David focused not necessarily on Saul, not necessarily on his agenda. David said, I'm just going to be faithful and I'm going to control what I can control. What could David control? His own behavior. And no matter what goes on in our world today, we might not be able to control much, but we can control our own behavior. Did you see what our president did? I'm not biting that apple. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. 
Just because you can jump into the middle, just because you can log on to Facebook and you can throw out your opinion all out there doesn't mean that you should. Just because you can get in the middle of somebody else's mess doesn't mean that it's good for you to get in the middle of somebody else's mess. David behaved himself wisely. Did it change Saul? Nope. Till the day Saul died, he wanted David dead. But the day that Saul died, David was in a position where he was ready to become what God wanted him to be. You have to wonder, if David had not behaved himself wisely, would he have been in a position to be the next king when Saul died? Hey, just because you can, if you do, when the time comes for you to be elevated, will you be ready for it? David was. How was he ready? Why was he ready? Because he behaved himself wisely. And that is our challenge. We need to do the same thing. Father, thank you so much for the life of David. And Lord, how it challenges and convicts us. Lord, help us to see ourselves in this story and help us to realize that we might not be able to control or change the world around us, but we can control our own behavior, our own attitude, our own actions. Lord, help us to do the right thing. Even when the world is focused on the wrong things, Lord, help us to do that which is right. Help us to make decisions that honor and bring glory to you. Even when that might mean that we have to be in the background, Lord, where we have to serve in the shadow, Lord, we might not get the spotlight, but Lord, if you get the honor and the glory, that should be what we want. Lord, I ask that you please help us to behave ourselves wisely in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to our prayer.